Hi, I'm Joe, and this is the Decahedron RPG Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Joe. No guest host this week. It's just me, and I thought I would do something a little different. I thought I would do like a real-time campaign development, let you see what I go through when I develop a new setting. Um, And maybe people out there will find inspiration in the way I do it. I think that's a good idea, in which case this is helpful to you. Or maybe you'll say, hey, that's a stupid way, Joe, and you'll tell me which way you do it, and that will be useful to me. Either way, it's useful to somebody, and I think that makes good content. So the campaign I want to make is a space-based sandbox. You know, far future space opera, but a sandbox, right? Let drop the players in, let them explore things, and hilarity ensues. Let me talk about the features I want incorporated, and some of which I feel are necessary for a sandbox, and some of which are just personal preference. In fact, let's make the first one just a personal preference one and say, I don't want any aliens. Um, I like humans. I think when you add in other uh, player character races or even NPC races, the stories become less about the story and more about some aliens special features. Oh, my elf has infravision. Yeah, whatever. I know that's a personal preference. I know most people out there don't share that preference, but (laughs) hey, this is my campaign. This is my world. So I'm going with what I want. Another thing I want is like the overall feel to be very much like the opening monologue for Star Star Trek. You know, you remember space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I, I want that feel. I want the players to go out and be able to encounter these civilizations and now we have a little bit of a conflict, right? Because if I don't want aliens, and if we're going where no man has gone before, what are these strange civilizations that we're going to encounter? So something has to give somewhere here. And I feel very strongly about the no aliens. So it's going to be the where no man has gone before part. Um, and to be honest, that always bothered me in Star Trek the original series. And I think because when I was watching it as a kid, I was very, very literally minded. And when the open monologue says where no man has gone before, it always irritated me that they were finding all these men that had went there before. So I'm going to give up on that part. So there will be strange civilizations, but there will be other human civilizations. And that's where we have to start getting creative, how we're going to work both of these facets and we, me. Oh, and one note, when I said no aliens, what I really mean is no living aliens. I am completely okay with the players finding artifacts from some long gone precursor civilization. That's a common trope in space opera. 
heck, it was even in Traveler, right? They, in fact, I think that's probably where I got the word precursor. Um, but yeah, I, I think it adds interest. I think it adds a level of depth. I, I like it. It can be fun. So when I say no aliens, I mean no living aliens. And even then, that, I don't want that to be a hard and fast. I want it to kind of be like the modern day situation where, yeah, there's no aliens. We think right and so that that'd be kind of cool you know there are stories of encounters and stuff but there's no hard concrete proof and stuff like that i want the players to be able to explore unknown space right i don't want there to be the map oh all right well you know if we go this way there's a planet if we go that way there isn't if we go you know they're they're exploring that there it's like mapping a dungeon right you don't give the players a map to the dungeon and let them Okay, we're going to walk to a room 67 now. Well, you know, actually some people do that. I don't do that. I like that feeling of exploration, you know. There's a corridor to the north and to the west. Okay, we're going to walk north. Okay, 10, 20, you know. And that's the same feel I want for space. All right, let's make our jump to this coordinate over here and see what's there. But now... Again, we're going to have conflict because if there's other civilizations, why don't the players just, once they find the first one, they say, hey, what other star systems are near here? So again, there's conflict and something's going to have to go and we're going to have to think this through a little bit. Another thing I want is varying tech levels. So I always like this in Star Trek, right? You come across a planet, maybe they're spacefaring, maybe they're not. Maybe they're Stone Age, maybe they're Renaissance, maybe they're, <laughs> I say Renaissance because just yesterday I went to the uh, local Renaissance fair and I had a great time. Anyway, you know, maybe they're a uh, Renaissance period, maybe they're, you know, um, even more advanced, but we're going to have to put a pin in that. So I like that. I never liked it in Traveler where everything is supposed to be part of the great Imperium. It's like, if there's an Imperium, how come this planet is like Stone Age and this planet is spacefaring? It's like when I travel to Colorado, they're not in the Stone Age. If I travel to Mississippi, they're not in the Stone Age, right? It's it mm, that that always bothered me about Traveler. So the fact that there isn't this one overarching government makes sense to me because if there were, we wouldn't need people to explore, right? And finally, I want there to be space battles. Space opera without space battles is like a sandwich without bread. You know, yeah, I mean, maybe you could do it, call it a wrap, but why would you, right? Hmm. So those are the things. But of course, now if I want space battles, that means some of those races need to be spacefaring and again that conflicts with the no maps thing i mean why don't they just oh give us the local map so i'm gonna stop recording here a little bit and i'm gonna think these things through and i'm gonna come up with ways to solve these conflicts and i will be back on the mic in just a little bit but of course for you no time will have passed be right back hi i'm back Took a little walk, had a little think. Um, I thought I should tell you a little bit about how I see the universe working. I talk about star systems a lot, you know, going from this planet to that planet. First of all, when I say planet, I mean different star systems. And then on top of that, when I say different star systems, I mean different Earths. 
This is my way of dealing with faster than light travel. I simply don't. Instead of trying to come up with some theory about how faster than light travel works and make it original and different, I like things to be original and different. It's probably a character flaw. I probably work too much on that. But anyway, instead of working on that, I view it as a sky full of Earths, (laughs) to paraphrase a Babylon 5 episode title. So the way, quote, FTL travel works in my universe is that you don't jump, to use a traveler term, you don't jump from this star system to that star system over there. You're not going from like Earth to Betelgeuse. You're not going from Betelgeuse to Proxima Centauri, right? You're going from Earth to a parallel Earth. And from there, you can go to other parallel Earths or back to this parallel, well, this Earth. Um, (laughs) And so the thought is that every star system that you might encounter, every point you encounter in, in the jumps is not traveling through time and space, but you're traveling through like a probability matrix is what I call it. You're traveling through a probability matrix of parallel universes. And in some of these universes, you know, things are pretty much the way we see them now. In a lot of the universes, the sun never formed and the whole area is still a big gaseous cloud nebula that would have been the Sol system had it had formed. In other ones, like Sol forms, you know, sun, our sun, I call it Sol. Um, our sun forms and the outer gas giants, they form another star instead of being gas giant planets. And it's a binary system and probably uninhabitable. In some, it's just like it is here. I think I said that already, except human life. Yeah. Human life has never evolved anywhere, but here I might've talked about this in an episode before and others, It's a lot like it was here, but, you know, in that early form of Earth's formation about 4.5 billion years ago, we didn't get hit by Theia, which was a Mars-sized planet, which causes the moon to eject. And the reason that's important is because the moon traveling around us is what keeps our nickel-iron core rotating, which is what forms the Earth's magnetic field, which is what protects the surface from the solar radiation, which that protection is what allows life to form and thrive and evolve. And so without that, you don't get a living system. Um, In other ones, life will be on Earth or Venus or something like that. But in all of them, it is still the system, just like I said, in parallel universes. I don't know if I mentioned it in my goals. One of my goals is that the map should be two-dimensional. So in Traveler, you know, they just use hexes and each hex is a system and it's very two-dimensional. And some people complain that that's not very realistic and they're right, it's not. But the alternative, the other way that other systems do it, I think Universe did it that way and I think uh, Space Opera did it, but you have the grid and you put planets on the intersections of the grids and then next to them, you give a height indicator above or below the galactic plane, you know, plus three, minus four, whatever, plus three means it's three parsecs, whatever unit unit measure is going to be above the galactic plane, my negative four is negative four beneath it. What I don't like about this system is, yes, it is more realistic, 
but it is more difficult for people to grasp. And when you have a system like that, you can have two systems that are right next to each other on the map, but because they're so different in planar orientation that another planet that's a few grids away looks like it's further away. And when you look at it, you will think it's further away, but you have to look at all the numbers and you have to do the math to say, oh no, those two are actually closer than these two that are right next to each other. And I said it a million times on the podcast before, is that given the option between realism and fun, I will usually lean towards fun. And being bogged down in three-dimensional trigonometry, I do not think is fun around the gaming table. So I just want to hand wave that, have a two-dimensional map. And if I call it a probability matrix based on parallel universes, it gets a whole lot easier. I think that is a good technobabble explanation for why the map is two-dimensional. Does it hold up to scrutiny? Probably not, but it's a game, right? So I'm going to refer to Traveler Up, right? Because Traveler was my first true love space RPG, and I think everyone's familiar with it. I think it is the benchmark by which all other things are mentioned. So in Traveler, you know, the standard thing is you leave planetary orbit and you travel for a few hours till you hit a safe distance from which to travel. And then you activate your jump drive and then you're in jump space for a week, which is kind of out of the universe. And then you emerge, you know, a week later at whatever your destination planet was. I'm not doing it that way. In fact, I'm flipping it almost exactly. In my system, I'm saying that you have to be traveling about 0.1 C, not exactly, but it's about there. I did the math for it once. And uh, relative to the local gravity well. And when you do that, you can activate your jump system. And that will cause you to jump. And then in my universe, the jump is instantaneous. So what you end up with is a situation where you're traveling for a week with an instant jump. Because I I think I, I forgot to say it. It takes about three and a half days to accelerate at 1G to 0.1 of the speed of light. And then when you make the jump, you maintain all that relative momentum that you had. So you need to spend about three and a half days decelerating uh, in order to, you know, come to a, quote, stop. It's space. So, you know, and that is where the magic of uh, navigation comes in is trying to figure out how to do that. So you can uh, decelerate and end up pretty near your destination planet in the destination system once you know enough about it. Oh, and why 1G is I, again, more techno babble, but you know, when I was a kid, people used to have jars of mercury and would play with it because it was kind of cool and it was kind of neat. And you would never think about doing that today because of hazmat and stuff, you know? And when my parents were kids, they would x-ray feet to see the shoes fit. And you would never do that today for fear of blowing your kids up. Um, So I'm just saying in the future, I mean, we already know that prolonged exposure to zero G has 
negative health consequences. And I'm just going to say it's that same level of caution that we have today for radiation and mercury and all that other stuff. Uh, just we have learned more that more and more exposure to zero G is harmful. So we avoid it. Oh, and I'm, yeah, I have no artificial gravity. I have no gravity dampers or anything like that. You can use higher gravity during like combat and stuff, but for day-to-day navigation, you do a 1G acceleration away from the planet you're leaving for three and a half days, constant 1G acceleration, and you do your jump and constant 1G deceleration for about three and a half days. Yeah, and that's how that works. Oh, and the map itself, I'm still on a map idea I used in the past. That campaign was called the Astral Web, and it's kind of a cross between uh, using the spaces on a hex map like Traveler and using the intersections of a square grid like GURP Space and all the other ones. I use the intersections on a hex map. That means for any given system, there's only three jumps you can make, and that's going along the probability matrix, right? And so I call them polarities. If you think about a hex map drawing in true column format, so all the hexes stack on top of each other, when you look at the lines there, you have a line that goes up, a line that goes down, and a line that goes to the side. The one that goes up, I say, is if you have a positive polarity on your jump. The one that goes down, I say, is if you have a negative polarity on your jump. And the one that goes off to the side is a neutral polarity. It's um, polarized. That's how the map works. As for the other stuff, still thinking that through, I will be back in a bit. Hey again, I'm back. Um, been doing some more thinking. I came up with two ideas. One is kind of a recycle of an old idea, and the other is a new idea. Not new, like no one's ever come up with this new, as in I haven't implemented it before, versus the other one I kind of did once, and it would just be some tweaks. So the old idea is what I used in the Astral Web, and I think talking about that is what made me think about that. Um, and that is sleeper ships. So in the original Astral Web campaign, the backstory was that a whole bunch of sleeper ships left Earth and on their way, you know, through normal space for years and years to some star. I can't remember which one I picked. It was a real star. And along the way, they stumbled into a wormhole, the event horizon of a black hole, whatever. Take your pick. Just techno babble stuff. And that dispersed them through space. In this version, it would disperse them through the probability matrix. And we don't have to focus on all the other ships. We just have to focus on that one or two ships that landed at the planet where the players start in terms of the the history and the backstory because they were cut off from all the others, right? There is no trans-universal communication and everyone ended up in different universes and they're not necessarily going to know that everyone got scattered through the universe. All they know is that they were separated from the fleet. For all they know, the fleet went on to its original destination, or the fleet was destroyed. They have no idea. Um, And so from there, the players, you know, once the, I don't know, let's call it the trans-universal engine tool 
Um, wow, that's lame. I'll think of something. Um, once that engine is discovered, you know, it's it's going to be those player characters going on that first adventure, um, that first exploration. They'll be part of the core of discovery. That's a little hat tip to Lewis and Clark in American history there. So uh, we can recycle that name and nobody can sue us for it because it's historical. Anyway, the, the core of discovery. And I don't know, maybe we'll actually name the the ship, the Clark, or the Lewis, or the Sacagawea. Oh, I almost like that. Yeah, anyway, uh, so the players would be there, and they would go to all these other um, places on the probability matrix, and they would encounter the descendants of other ships. Let's say 500 years passed since the wormhole event, and they all colonized the respective planets. So that could be interesting, right? They could go there and say, you know, let's all unite as one big, happy, you know, Earth descendants thing. But, you know, it's been 500 years. The, the people living there aren't necessarily going to have any any allegiance to people descended from people who knew each other 500 years ago. I mean, 500 years ago, uh, let's see, who was king? King uh, Henry VIII was king of England. Um I hold no allegiance to <laughs> Henry VIII. Someone knocked at my door today and say, "Hey, let, let's unite to to reform the kingdom of Henry VIII." I'm like, "Yeah, he was kind of a dictator and a jerk." No thanks. Um, yeah, that's the one idea. Um, the problem I see with that idea is, I said I wanted space battles, right? I said that. Uh, that space opera without space battles was like a sandwich without bread. And I'm not sure why all these planets would have developed space weapon capability. Um, I'm not even sure why our, our own planet would have. Maybe we can say that before planets reach the stars, they first reach the planets within their system. And, Human nature being what it is, the governments all went through a separation phase, so there's always been wars and stuff. I I don't know. So that's that's the sticking point I see on that one. The other one I thought of is that uh, the tool, engine, whatever, was developed on Earth, and from there, exploration happened, and a big Earth-led civilization was developed and then there was a societal collapse you know kind of like the collapse of the roman empire or the bronze age collapse something happened that just brought everything to a standstill there was no more interstellar trade and everything and for this to work because you'd still have to say you know I mean, we're still going to have those old maps and all those old planets are going to be where they were. You'd have to say that the very method of whatever made the jump drive work stopped working. The probability matrix broke down completely. And what has happened now is that someone on some planet, whichever planet the PCs are starting at, has discovered a new way to transverse the matrix, but the new way kind of rewrites the matrix. The probability lines are different. 
So even though we know those worlds are out there, their orientations to each other are different. And so that one kind of works because now you have these planets that were inhabited and say you had like a desert world that relied a lot on interstellar tree to bring them water or a vacuum world that required on that interstellar tree to bring them breathable air and stuff. What happens after 500 years of no interstellar trade? They're probably a ghost world. That could be suitably creepy and stuff. Um, And as for the weaponry, I mean, it's the same weaponry that they had before society collapsed 500 years ago. Actually, maybe advanced a little or whatever, but you get the idea. It gives an an explanation why any planet would still have the weaponry. and. Just to throw in a, you know, a fun little complexity, while the players think that they are the first planet to develop the new form of drive that works, no one says that they actually have to be. And so after you run the campaign for a few sessions, they can encounter another world that has been setting out from their world, only this one's more militarized, and they are trying to reunite society, but under an iron fist. Um, shades of Gamma World there, Shades of Traveler of the New Era there, uh, Shades of the entire medieval age there, where all of Western Europe was trying to recreate the Roman Empire. Um, yeah, so having talked through both of those aloud, I think I kind of favored the the second one because, again, it answers the interstellar warfare thing. It gives us the the ghost worlds, which I really like. And um, the only sticking point I have there is how do you justify the entire probability matrix collapsing and now it's working? I'm thinking maybe there's something like a dilithium crystal that it's the resonant frequency of that crystal that determines the matrix that you transverse on and the old matrix collapsed. Maybe, oh, two ideas for that one. Um, maybe there was like a psionic rebellion and something psionic happened during that time and that caused the probability matrix to collapse. I like that because it introduces psionics to the world a little bit and it makes them not entirely trusted some traveler throwbacks there. I kind of like that. The other thing is maybe someone um, was experimenting with time travel and that broke down the entire matrix. Um, On the other hand, it could be that nobody knows, right? Because no matter which one of those happened, (laughs) as soon as the matrix collapsed, there's no way for the different worlds to talk to each other. So it's not like Rigel 7 can say, oops, sorry, our bad. We did an experiment. It went wrong. All right. No one will ever know. So maybe I shouldn't worry about answering that question. I just should just say it happened. Um, Yeah. So maybe that's the answer. Anyway, this show has gone on for a bit now, so I'm going to shut it down. Let me know your thoughts on both of these, on the sleepership one, on the societal collapse one. Um. Like I said, I'm leaning towards a societal collapse other than that one question I can't answer. Um, but I think they're they're both good ideas. 
And yeah, let me know. And if you like this episode, I'll spend another episode fleshing out the history once I know which one of those we're going to go with. But anyway, like I said, this was a different type of episode. A lot of me thinking out loud, coming up with this campaign setting. You notice I start with the experiences I want the players to have. I'm not sure a lot of people do that. I think when they're coming up with a campaign idea, I think they just say, oh, this would be cool and do that. And then the player experience grows out of that. Nothing wrong with that approach. I'm not saying, oh, I'm so much better or smarter or anything remotely like that. I'm saying, (laughs) if anything, I'm saying, hmm, Joe's a little weird. Um, Anyway, just let, let me know. Let me know what you think about this universe idea. Let me know what you think about this episode idea and whether or not I should pursue it with another one. Thanks for listening. Send feedback, feedback at decahedron.com. Call the feedback line. The number's in the show notes. It's in the outro music that you're about to hear, or go to sayhi.chat slash decahedron, or you can go to the play forums. Any way you do it, I'd love to hear from you. Until next week, happy gaming, happy life. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Decahedron RPG cast. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message by calling 562-774-2278. That's 562-RPG-CAST. Or by visiting sayhi.chat slash decahedron. You can also email us at feedback at decahedron.com. Links are in the show notes. For more information, visit decahedron.com. Remember that decahedron is spelled with a K. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Logos by Design Cat. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep those dice rolling.